It's good to see you this morning. Glad you're here because Pastor is in a series on eschatology. He's actually just asked me to preach kind of the next topic in our list of things to cover on this area of eschatology. So over the last several weeks, Pastor has covered a number of topics relating to the end times. We'll do a brief review here, and then we'll launch into what we have this morning. The first key event, as we look at the prophetic calendar, the prophetic timeline, is the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. After the rapture, the Antichrist comes and signs a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. This begins the tribulation period, which lasts seven long years. The Bible says that it's because of God's mercy and his care for his elect in those days that those days are cut short. At the end of those seven years, the Lord Jesus returns, his second coming, and pastor preached on that last week. He comes, Revelation 19 says, on a great white horse to make war and to conquer, and he defeats his enemies. And then he will set up his throne in Jerusalem, we believe, and reign for a thousand years. Revelation 20 uses that term a thousand years six different times. And so we believe it refers to a literal thousand years. And after the thousand year millennial kingdom, God judges unbelievers and establishes the new heavens and new earth. But before we can get into the millennial kingdom, we need to talk about the bodily resurrection of the dead. The bodily resurrection of the dead. Resurrections are incredibly difficult to pull off. And if you're thinking, you're saying, wait a minute, they're not just difficult, they're impossible to pull off. Exactly. Okay. Resurrections are impossible to pull off. You know, movie characters might fake their own death in the movies and then they come back at a dramatic moment only to reappear at the critical moment in the plot. But that's not the same as a resurrection. That's deception. Plenty of people have been exiled out of their country only to return triumphantly And that may be a picture of resurrection, but that's still not a resurrection. They didn't die. They just left for a period of time. On several occasions, newspapers published a person's obituary incorrectly. The famed Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite and the founder of the Nobel Peace Prize, comes to mind. But that's not a resurrection either, because if you didn't die, you technically didn't rise. You just had a newspaper that was out to get you. Well, the Bible speaks of two resurrections, a spiritual resurrection and a physical resurrection. The Bible says that when a person receives Christ as Savior, a spiritual resurrection takes place. Those that were dead in trespasses and sins are now made alive and raised up together with Christ, Ephesians 2 says. But the Bible also speaks of the future bodily resurrection of all people. And so this morning, we're going to focus on this aspect of resurrection. I'm not going to talk about the spiritual resurrection that happens at salvation. But we're going to talk about what the resurrection of the body is all about. And this idea of the resurrection of a physical body is not unprecedented. The Bible records several of these resurrections that have taken place in history. Elijah, the prophet, raised the widow of Zarephath's son. His protege, Elisha, raised the Shunammite's son. There's a really neat story in 2 Kings 13 that says that Elisha's bones raised a dead man. If you're not familiar with that, I encourage you to go read that. Jesus raised three individuals that we know of. He raised the widow of Nain's son, the the daughter of Jairus, and then his friend Lazarus, probably the most well-known. Matthew 27 says that when Jesus died on the cross, there were several Old Testament saints that arose, came out of the graves, and appeared to many in Jerusalem. Kind of a cryptic reference. Peter, 
the apostle raised Dorcas in Acts 9. Paul, the apostle, raised Eutychus in Acts chapter 20. In Revelation 11, two witnesses that are killed by the Antichrist will be raised by God. And most importantly, our Lord Jesus rose from the dead. So when the Bible predicts a bodily future resurrection of all people, there's precedent. You can take it on good authority. And if you're like me, you celebrate the resurrection of Jesus fairly often. We do that at Easter. Sometimes Pastor Brian arranges the hymns so that it's focused on resurrection. But you don't really think about your own resurrection or the fact that everyone else in this room and everyone else in this world will be raised again at the end of time. And so we need to remedy that this morning. The reality of a bodily resurrection affects every single one of us because you will be raised whether you've thought a lot about that or thought not at all about that. We need to understand the Bible's teaching on the resurrection of the dead. And so this morning in our time, we will explore four ideas about the Bible's teaching on the resurrection of the dead. Because this is a little bit more of an unfamiliar topic, let's first ask the question, why? Why is it important to know about the bodily resurrection of all people? So let's talk first about the importance of the resurrection. I've got three reasons. I think I had eight on Friday and cut it down to three. You're welcome, okay? First of all, the resurrection addresses matters of destiny. You've heard Pastor Hines talk about this. When it comes to matters of worldview or or religion, every religion, every worldview has to answer five critical questions. Destiny is one of these things. What happens after death? End of life issues. What happens to us in our bodies is a big part of what happens after death. And so in some ways, this life is simply a long preparation for the next one. You need to know what happens to you after death because understanding that will affect and influence and impact the way you live right now. Second, the resurrection reveals God's care for our physical bodies. Maybe you've never thought of it this way. God created our bodies in his image, Genesis chapter one and two, and he declared them to be good. So we don't believe as Christians that the material body is evil. There are some religions that say that that flesh and blood is evil and only the spiritual is good. That's not what the Bible teaches. God created humans in his own image. And when man sinned, we did not lose the image of God, but the image of God was marred by sin. And we believe that at the end of time, when God redeems and restores people, the image of God will be restored in man and women, mankind. When God redeemed you, he redeemed all of you, body and soul. He doesn't just redeem your soul and say, oh, your body, you can do whatever you want with that. 1 Corinthians 6.20, glorify God in your body and in your spirits, which are God's. And then remember our Savior, Jesus Christ. The second member of the eternal Godhead descended to earth and took on a human body. And we believe that the Bible teaches when he ascended into heaven, he remains in his resurrected body for all of eternity, which shows the eternal identification of our Lord with sinners. With redeemed humanity, he identifies now. The third important reason of the resurrection is that it's a major part of God's recreation plan. This is not recreation, like going and having a good time in the park this afternoon. This is recreation. We believe that the grand story of the Bible has several movements. God created the world. Man fell into sin by his or her own choice. So it's not really a fall as in a stumble, but a deliberate rebellion, a choice. God is therefore working to redeem, to buy back, to save humankind. 
And that at the end of time, God will recreate or renew. He will bring history to a conclusion by creating a new heavens and a new earth. Believers in Jesus will reside in this new creation in resurrected bodies. We're not disembodied spirits living for all of eternity. Our current bodies are weak, sinful, and stung by death. So we will be raised and given a resurrection body to live in for all of eternity. So if you're hoping that you could change your look in eternity, you're probably stuck somewhat close to what you've got right now. But it'll be perfect, at least, at that point in time. Now, with that in mind, let's turn to the key facts about the resurrection of the body. And the Bible contains a number of things in a number of places. It's fairly spread out in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the passages that we're going to land in because that's a key passage. But we'll be turning to several passages. And there's more about the doctrine or the teaching of the resurrection than we have time to cover today, believe it or not. Because at the end of this, you're going to say, that was plenty long. (laughs) There is more that we can cover. But I want to point out three key facts about the doctrine of the resurrection. First of all, it's this, the Old Testament predicted a bodily resurrection. We could extend it and say both Testaments, the entire Bible teaches a bodily resurrection. And it's fascinating to me because this idea of resurrection was not a late aspect to the Jewish people's belief system. It didn't arise late in their beliefs because the first reference to resurrection is in Job chapter 19. Job, most commentators believe, dwelled around 2000 BC, a contemporary of Abraham. Already there is a belief in the bodily resurrection of the dead. Here's what Job 19, 25 through 27 says. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, after I die, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. And if you think about the story of Job, in spite of his suffering, in spite of his calamity, he clings to the hope that someday he will have a bodily resurrection and see God. The second Old Testament passage I want to point out is in Isaiah. This is around 725 BC. We've just fast forwarded 1300 years. Here's a very clear reference to it. Isaiah says, your dead shall live. And I think this is the Lord speaking. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust. That's a euphemism for you who are buried or you have decayed to dust. Those have died. For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. What a picture. That in that day when the resurrection happens, the earth is going to spit out, just like the whale spit out Jonah. The the earth is going to spit out believers and unbelievers to rise from the dead. Then the third Old Testament passage is Daniel chapter 12. And this is the most important passage in the Old Testament on the resurrection. We'll actually be revisiting this in a moment. It says this, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, so those who have died, shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So note here that there are two resurrections listed, one to everlasting life, the other to everlasting contempt. We'll come back to this passage in a few minutes, but kind of log that away because that'll come up important later. Here's a second reason or second aspect of the doctrine of the resurrection. And this is in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you take your Bibles, we haven't landed anywhere yet. Open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Maybe you're already there from what Pastor Jacob read a moment ago. 
And the second aspect of the doctrine here is that Jesus' resurrection is the basis for human resurrection. In other words, why are we able to be raised? How can we be raised? It's because Jesus rose from the dead. Look at verse 20 with me. It's also on the screen. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So what is this teaching? That Jesus' resurrection is the basis for our physical resurrection. 2 Corinthians 4.14 affirms the same truth, knowing, it says, that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. We'll revisit this passage in another moment. Here's the third key fact of the resurrection I want you to see, is that there is a description of the resurrection body. And that's in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 42. Look at verse 42 with me, will you? So also is the resurrection of the dead. So we're speaking of resurrection. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. So the first aspect of the description of the body is that it's incorruptible. That means it's impervious to decay. It will not deteriorate. It cannot die. Verse 43 gives us a second. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. So it's glorious, this resurrected body. It's full of splendor and honor as opposed to dishonor. But the verse continues. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. The fact that the resurrection body is powerful means that it's free from sickness. It is without sin. It's without just human weakness. There's no tiring. It's a, it's a powerful resurrected body. It's full of strength. Verse 44, it's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there's a spiritual body. To clarify, this is not talking about that it's physical versus spiritual. This is natural being of the flesh or of the sinful nature versus of the spirit, capital S. So what Paul is writing here is that the glorified body will be empowered by the spirit to the full. Just as we try to walk in the Spirit and be filled by the Spirit on a daily basis, Paul says that when we get into eternity, the Spirit fills us completely 24 hours a day. That's beautiful. The passage continues. We'll keep reading. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. Our natural, our earthly bodies come first, and then, in the end, our spiritual bodies come. The first man was of the earth made of dust. That's a reference to Adam. The second man, capital M here, referring to Christ, is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. Verse 49, as we have born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. The resurrected body will be heavenly. It'll be belonging to heaven. It'll be like Christ. It will not be suited to earth because it is suitable to live in the heavenly environment. And in verse 53, which I don't think I have on the screen, it says this. Pastor Jacob read it a moment ago. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. That means that it is immortal, it's undying, it's, it's not subject to death, it is eternal. And then seventh, 
Mark chapter 12 gives a very interesting description. Mark chapter 12 verse 25 says that for when they rise from the dead, Jesus says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. What does it mean to be like the angels in heaven in a resurrected body? That means that after the resurrection, humans do not have intimate relations or procreate with one another. They will instead be completely related to God and enjoy a fullness and satisfaction of serving God and being perfectly related to one another. It's a time of unthinkable relationship unity. Even in in marriage where we are supposed to be unified, there is conflict because there are two sin natures dwelling under the same roof. In heaven, there's no conflict. Can you imagine that, given our current political context? No conflict. So this is our resurrection body. It's incorruptible, it's glorious, it's powerful, it's of the spirit, it's heavenly, it's immortal and eternal, and it's like the angels in heaven. So that brings us to a third question. When will the resurrection take place? When will it take place? And from different passages, we learn that there are two resurrections. Let's revisit Daniel chapter 12. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There are two resurrections spoken about. Revelation 20, verse 6, the first half of it, shares the same information. Blessed and holy is the one, is he, who has part in the first resurrection. So if there is a first resurrection, there must be a second resurrection. And here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the first resurrection is to life or unto life. The second is unto death. In other words, believers rise in the first resurrection while unbelievers are raised in the second. Now, don't be confused by this, but the first resurrection unto life for believers has multiple stages. And you're thinking, okay, this is going to be a little bit tough. Well, I think this will explain and clarify for you why different parts of your Bible seem to talk about the different timing for different resurrections. Let's use a chart that we've put together. This may help. I always like charts, right? Let's use this chart to help us get an overview. Then we'll look at each one more closely. So first of all, the resurrection unto life is numbers one through four on the chart. The first aspect, the first stage of the resurrection of life is Jesus's resurrection from the dead. And then you see that we live in the church age. That's the age that we are living in. Christ has died and rose. We are anticipating stage two, which is the resurrection of the church. After the church is raised in the rapture, the tribulation period takes place, at the end of which Christ comes back and returns. The third stage of the resurrection, therefore, is that of Old Testament saints, those who believed before Christ came, and tribulation martyrs. And we're going to work through each of these a little bit more carefully. I'm just trying to give you the whole overview right up front. Then there's the thousand-year millennial reign. That's what we believe. And then at the end of the thousand-year millennial reign, there are two resurrections that happen at the same time, but they're different categories. Number four there on the screen is resurrection of millennial saints. That is the last stage of the resurrection to life. At the same time, There is the second resurrection, which is the resurrection unto death. That is unbelievers being raised and judged at the great right throne judgment, after which time the eternal state begins. Let's take a closer look at these resurrections, starting with Jesus' resurrection, because that's 
super, super critical for us to understand. So the resurrection to life begins with Jesus' resurrection. Let's look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because in this chapter, Paul teaches about the resurrection. In fact, all 58 verses are focused on the resurrection. It's known as the resurrection chapter. And if we had an hour and a half today, we could work through every verse here, but we don't. So look at verse 20 again. Verse 20, Jesus has become the first fruits, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What are first fruits? You say, well, that's a really easy question. They're fruits that come first. Exactly. In an agricultural society like this was, this would be the very first part of harvest, which gave evidence that the crop was about to ripen and be ready for reaping. Jesus' resurrection then as the first fruits means that there is a harvest of resurrections to come. But how does this happen? How do humans rise again? How can they do that? Verses 21 through 22 tell us. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Stop there for a moment. So what Paul is teaching us is that sin entered the world through our father, Adam. Every one of his children is blessed with a sin nature. He has passed that down to all of us. Death entered the world through Adam. So how can we have newness of life? It's through a different man, a second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Adam all die, verse 22, but whoever is in Christ, whoever is united to Jesus by faith, will be made alive. Verses 23 through 24 tell us that there is an order, but each one in his own order. So there's different timings, even in this passage. Christ, the firstfruits. Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. And one of the hard things in scripture is that sometimes they don't delineate all the different stages of the resurrection to life. That's what makes it a little bit confusing. So what Paul is saying here is that you have Christ the first fruits and then he is lumping the rest of the believers in one resurrection. The final one then comes the end, verse 24. When he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, that refers to unbelievers. Because when Jesus delivers the kingdom to the Father, he will stamp out all enemies. How do you know that? Verse 25, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Christ will rule over all his enemies and even death will be destroyed. Revelation 21 says that there will be no more pain, no more tears, and no more dying. So to summarize this first point, Jesus' resurrection makes possible the resurrection of believers. Since he has already risen, our resurrection is guaranteed. We have a good foundation for our faith in that matter. When do our resurrections take place? Well, let's look at the chart again. And I put a big orange thing so I know which resurrection I'm talking about. Maybe it'll benefit you as well. The resurrection of the church, if you are a believer in Jesus, this is when you will rise. Two New Testament passages address this. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 57. 
And then 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 17. Let's look at that passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And let's work through it. Let's see what the Bible says here. Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So the point is he's going to explain something to give them comfort because he doesn't want them to sorrow. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Our belief in Jesus' resurrection provides the basis for our own resurrection. Here it is again. If Jesus died and rose again, that means we will too. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. This shows us that we're dealing with a question of timing. Who will rise first? What will happen to the dead that have believed in Christ? And what Paul is saying in verse 15 is that those who have died will rise first. So there's actually a slight advantage to dying instead of being raptured alive. Verse 16, for the Lord himself, this is how it's going to happen. He will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, who, which dead rise? It's the dead in Christ. That's why we believe that the rapture only raises church age believers. Because believers in the church age, remember that's after Christ, that's the age that we are living in. They are in Christ. So believers in Christ will be raised. And then after he raises those who have died in Christ, he will raise those of us that are alive and remain. And thus, Paul says, we shall always be with the Lord. When believers are alive at the time of the rapture, this verse teaches us that they will be translated into their resurrection bodies. That's stage two. Stage three comes seven years later, and it deals with Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs. Now, that's very specific, and I'll show you why. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, again, is a key for understanding when Old Testament saints are raised. And I was going to put both verses up on the screen at the same time, but Daniel 12, 1 is so long, I have to divide it into two. So, look with me, will you? At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Who are your people? It's the nation of Israel, so Jewish people. And there shall be a time of trouble. What does that refer to? The tribulation period. There is a long time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And I think he's specifically referring to the second half of the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. At that time, at the end of that time, your people shall be delivered. Well, how will the Jewish people be delivered? The Lord Jesus, in his second coming, will deliver the nation of Israel. Romans 9 says that all Israel will be saved. At that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book, every true believer of God, that is Israel, will be delivered. Verse 12, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. This clearly refers to the resurrection, but who does this refer to? Well, we just said that this refers to the Jewish people. 
So we're talking about everyone who's found written in the book, believing Jews. Second, when will they rise? Verse 1 says, again, at that time they are delivered. When are the Jewish people delivered? At the end of the tribulation. That's when Old Testament saints, we believe, rise from the dead. Now, what about tribulation martyrs? They're the, they're the other group of people that rise at the same time. This is in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20 talks about the rising, the raising of tribulation martyrs at the same time as Old Testament saints. So look at verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Here it is. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads and on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So who specifically are we talking about? The beginning part of verse 4 says that those who had beheaded for their witness to Jesus, those who had been martyred by the Antichrist because of their faithfulness to Jesus. And the Bible says in this verse that they lived, received their resurrection bodies, and reigned with Christ for the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. Now, there's a question that kind of comes with that. Does this affect only those who were martyred in the tribulation? What about those believers that maybe died of some of the plagues at the very beginning or died of natural causes or a building fell over in an earthquake and, and they died? To ask this question another way, will every believer who dies in the tribulation be a martyr or are there others that die in the tribulation that believe in Jesus? And the answer is just that we're not told we don't know if there are other believers that die for other reasons. Here's why I bring that up. If there are tribulation saints that are not martyred for their faith, but they die for another reason, they would rise in the fourth stage along with believers who died in the millennial kingdom. And here's the fourth stage. It's at the end of the millennial kingdom, and it's the resurrection of millennial saints. Kingdom, millennial kingdom believers uh, are raised here. Now, you say point to a, a specific verse of scripture that has it. I think Revelation 20 verse 5 mentions this. That's debated. So we're going to have to just kind of think scripture's thoughts after it. If there are people who die in the millennial kingdom that are true believers, when do they get raised? Well, if you notice, what comes just after this resurrection stage? What's on the line afterward? eternity. So this is in some ways the last chance for those to be raised unto life. This issue hinges on another question, and I hope you're following me here. Will the millennial kingdom have non-glorified believers that die? Is it possible to be a believer in Jesus in the millennial kingdom and die? There are two answers to that. Number one is that we who are resurrected and received our resurrected bodies will not die. But what about those, as Pastor will talk about in a couple weeks, those that enter the millennial kingdom as believers, will they die? And Pastor and I would both answer this as a yes, they can die. We believe non-glorified believers can die in the millennial kingdom for a couple of reasons. First, when Isaiah describes how long people live in the millennial kingdom, he doesn't say that death will be gone. He simply says that a person who dies at 100 will be considered a child. It's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? If you die at 100, you're considered a youth. 
Ah, you only live to 100. You barely got your driver's license. That means that there are others that are living a lot longer, but it doesn't say that death was abolished. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And so when will death be destroyed? We would argue that it's destroyed at the great white throne judgment. And so that happens at, after the millennial kingdom, okay? So if you're like, I just didn't follow all of that. Let's do a quick review here, okay? It's up on the chart on the screen. You can do this. The first part of the resurrection unto life is Jesus' resurrection. You're clear on that. When will we be resurrected as church age believers? That's at the rapture. There will be another resurrection unto life at the end of the tribulation. That's stage three. Resurrection of Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs. And then at the end of the millennial kingdom, there will be the resurrection of millennial age saints that have died. In contrast, there is only one moment for the resurrection unto contempt. There's only one instance that unbelievers rise, and it's the same arrow, it's the same orange spot on the chart. It's at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom. So let's talk about the resurrection unto death. And that seems like a contradiction in terms, right? I, a resurrection only to die again? But notice what Revelation 20 verse 6 says. It's on the screen here. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. That's the resurrection to life. That's the resurrection. If you're a believer in Jesus, you will be part of. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. How does John contrast the first resurrection? What does the verse say? It's the first resurrection versus the second death. Let's read later on in this chapter, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. And it's one of the most sobering passages in the entire Bible. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. This is when God, the ancient of days, sits on a great white throne to judge evil once and for all. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Verse 13, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Notice what this is saying. That all the unbelieving dead are raised. Verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. All the unbelieving dead are raised at the same moment. They are judged. Two different times it says they are judged by their works. Every person falls short of God's glory. Trusting in works lands you, as verse 14 and 15 says, in the lake of fire. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire this is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. What a sobering passage. While believers are enjoying eternal bliss, unspeakable glories, unbelievers are damned for all of eternity, justly repaid for their rejection of Christ. And before we shift to application, I, 
we're going to come back to this idea, and, and frankly, I'm going to plead with you. I want to talk about one other related issue, then we'll move to application. And it's this. What happens to a human after death but before these resurrections? What's the intermediate state as it's known as? And there's only two answers. First of all is that believers in Jesus reside in heaven. Absent from the body, 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, is to be present with the Lord. Paul says in Philippians 1 that I'd rather depart from this life and be with Christ, which is far better. Well, where did the Lord Jesus go when he ascended? He ascended to the Father's right hand. So if a believer is with the Lord Jesus, present with the Lord, that means he is in heaven, enjoying fellowship with God, awaiting the full resurrection of the body. Second, unbelievers this is the only other place. They're cast into hell. Jesus said in Luke 12, 5, fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. At the great white throne judgment, hell's occupants will be emptied. Hell is, in a sense, a holding tank, the waiting room for the eternal judgment. Hell is emptied, its occupants judged, hell and death itself cast into the lake of fire. That is the second death. There is no other resurrection. There is no other hope. So let's shift gears here this morning and wrap up by considering four responses to the resurrection. Four responses to the resurrection. The first is in 1 Corinthians 15. And we see that the resurrection affects the way we live in this life. 1 Corinthians 15, 32. If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. What's Paul saying here? He's saying if there's no resurrection, there's no accountability. There's no judgment. There's no afterlife. So it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how we live. It doesn't matter what choices we make. But if there is a resurrection, that means there is an afterlife and there is accountability and there is a judgment and you would be wise to prepare for this eternity. It's so difficult to grasp in a meaningful way what eternity is going to be like. Yesterday I was thinking about some of these truths as I drove to the library and back. Your mind almost grows numb right? Your heart becomes a little dull when you're trying to think about living forever. You're trying to think about the unmatched and unspeakable glories. I mean, even John and Daniel, when they saw these things, they said, what I saw was like unto, and it kind of looked like this, and, and they don't even know what they're describing. It's so glorious. If we truly believe that what is to come is glorious, that affects everything about us. Living by faith becomes a whole lot easier, and yet we're such sensory-bound creatures, are we not? We're, we're, it's so difficult for us to even get in the skin of somebody else here that we love, let alone somebody on the other part of the world, let alone think about the age that's to come. And the resurrection reminds us that there's a whole lot more to live than the life we have now. Second, the resurrection motivates us to faithfully serve the Lord. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You see, the resurrection motivates us to be steadfast, to be anchored in our faith, because we can't be moved. It's like what 1 Peter 1 says, that when we understand the majesty of the glory laid up for us in heaven, earthly pressures just kind of lose their grip on us. So when we know that there's a resurrection coming, we are to be steadfast, immovable like rocks, always abounding in the work of the Lord, doing the faithful work of the ministry. 
laboring right now to bring souls into the kingdom because that's what matters. Why do we do all this? Because we know, we believe that our labor is not in vain. It's not worthless. The things you do in this life will matter. Hebrews 6, God is not unjust to overlook your service and your labor of love, but will give a reward for that. The resurrection motivates us to faithfully serve the Lord. And then 1 Thessalonians 4.18, it brings comfort to us. You want to know when the struggles of life is over? It's the moment Jesus takes you to be with him, whether that's at death or the rapture. And from there on out, for you that have believed in Jesus, it's eternal bliss. And that's not an exaggeration, that's an understatement. It's a bliss, it's a joy that words cannot describe, that vision cannot explain, that sight just can't even grasp. There's a great comfort in knowing these truths of the resurrection for another reason, because if you have the ability to raise the dead, you have an authority that is unmatched by anyone else. The only resurrections in history are those that are associated with Jehovah God. His authority is ultimate. There is only one person who holds the keys to death, and that is the Lord Jesus. The resurrection of the body reveals his ultimate authority. It reveals his unlimited power, his unparalleled dominion. We don't live life and say, well, Jesus, I'm ready to go now. He rules over these things, and that's the God we serve. For those that have received him, there is perfect peace. Our eternal life is held by the one who conquered death itself. If you conquer something, you rule over it. Jesus conquered death. Death answers to him now. The sting of death may get us, but it won't deal a fatal blow. But the resurrection of the dead also does another thing. It calls unbelievers to repentance. For those who have never received Christ, the reality of a future resurrection calls you to reckon with King Jesus, to reckon with those things that we've talked about today, to reckon with the one who holds the keys to death itself. Consider your relationship to him because if Jesus has the power over life and death, and he does, then you need to know where you stand with him. Because if you are on the outside, it is not his mercy to blame, it is your sinfulness. The resurrection calls upon unbelievers to repent of their sins and trust Christ as Savior. Christ has died for our sins, risen to defeat death, and ascended to guarantee eternal life. So what are you waiting for? It's right there. It's eternal life. Why won't you trust him? But if you foolishly and stubbornly and sinfully resist, you will be judged on the basis of your works, which are not good enough. For those who pledge their allegiance to the creator of life, they will experience new life to the fullest, life that is unimaginable. But for those who remain in their rebellion against God and his authority, they will experience resurrection only to be sent to a second death. It's not an understatement to say that today life and death hang in the balance. Sinner, repent of your sins. Trust Christ. Join us who have been redeemed, who anticipate the resurrection life, who find comfort in this resurrection and not condemnation. I'll leave you with one final question. Which resurrection are you part of? 
Let's pray together. Father, as we consider eternal destiny and things to come, in some ways our hearts grow numb thinking about the glories that's to come and in some ways they can't comprehend the pain and the agony of death to come, a death that is undying, a torture that is never complete, a payment for sins that will never be finished. And we who believe thank you that Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, something that hell's occupants will never know. And if there is any here today, Father, all of us that have believed plead with you that those who do not know Christ as Savior will repent of their sins, that will come to him in faith, will humble themselves. For those who have believed, the vast majority, I am guessing, May we receive comfort knowing what is going to happen. May we not have questions about what's to come in the next life because we know from your word what it shows us and what it teaches us. And we are assured and guaranteed these things. The guarantee is in the hand of the one who's conquered death. And so we rejoice in our Lord Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for us today. In Jesus' name, amen.